out of your seats. All right, so this has been a really, really uh, crazy week. A lot of stuff's happened. A lot of the stuff is going on. Uh, spent a lot of time here yesterday doing spaghetti dinner stuff, and um, I'm exhausted completely and totally. And, uh, and so we're just going to have to pray and trust that God uh, hijacks the words on these pages and does something amazing with them. And so uh, today we've got a video for you to watch to kind of set the stage for the topic that we're digging into today. The Bible, uh, for me, is a guidebook. I think it's inspired by God, and I do think it's filled with inaccuracies. Now, you'll see things in there that remind you of yourself, and it'll make you really want to change. You'll realize that that Bible's not lying to you, but it's telling you truth. Just a storybook written by some people about some character. There's plenty of things that even if you don't believe in God, there's plenty of things in the Bible that can improve your life. I personally don't think everything should be taken literally. The Bible? Mm, that's controversial. <laughs> Thank you for asking. The Bible is still here. It, this book is almost 2,000 years old. It, it still exists for some reason. And to me, that stands out. That means something. It's not coincidence. All righty. So that's what we'll be digging into today as we explore God. We're going to be talking about the reliability of scriptures. And, uh, of course, you know, really these things always depend upon your audience. And if you were all a bunch of non-believers and you were, you were not in a position of any faith at all, I would probably do this differently. But, uh, of course, they teach you the first day of seminary, you have to know your audience. And so I don't want to bore you with all those things that, uh, that you've already come to grips with, right? So we'll talk about some other forms of application and, and relevancy. Uh, one of the most amazing speakers I've ever heard in a conference, uh, and this was as a youth pastor taking teenagers, was Dawson McAllister. He uh, wrote the book, Evidence Demands a Verdict. Have you all heard of Dawson McAllister? YouTubing. It won't, it'll be worth your while. But I remember in this particular conference, he came up, and he's, he's an intellect, not like me. He's an intellect, and when he went up to the podium, he, he took a certain aggressiveness and, and confidence as he went through the scriptures, and he talked about probability. It was amazing. And, and, and I can't remember or, or recite what he said because this was years ago, but some of the things he talked about was the fact uh, uh, that Adam or that Abraham was going to be the father of Israel, and then he had the illegitimate son, uh, Ishmael, through Hagar, and then he had Isaac through Sarah, and the probability that Jesus, that this Messiah would come through Isaac was 50%, right? And, and so Ishmael was rejected because it wasn't pure, uh, pure blood, and, and so the, the lineage went through Isaac. And then he talked about Isaac's children and the probability that the Messiah would come through one of those children and, and which child and he talked about the scriptures that said, you know, that, that this Messiah will be born in Bethlehem and will be born of the lineage of David and all this. So he went through all the probability of the entire, entire genealogy from Abraham all the way up to the birth of Christ. 
And when he got up to Christ, he said the probability that Jesus would fit into all of these prophetic messages is one in like 2,600 billion or something like it. It was just crazy numbers, right? And so you're like, with your chin drop, you're like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. And then he said, of every prophecy in the scripture that predicted it, the, the probability increases even more. And so he was using all these crazy numbers, which, you know, I'm not a numbers guy anymore. I quit algebra in high school. Uh, but, but all these numbers are flooding over, and you're like, that is just absolutely crazy. What are the chances that all of these prophecies would be true and accurate? What are the chances that the lineage would be exactly what the Bible predicted? It, it's just crazy stuff. But, but he would also tell you this, that when it comes to believing in anything, really. It's based on two things. It's based on the testimony of others, and it's based on evidence. And so he, I remember him talking about this. He said that uh, there was a time in the world, and a lot of people will say this. Uh, you'll hear this. Um, when it comes to faith and belief, people will say, well, yeah, back in the day, people used to believe the earth was flat, and they believed that was truth. They believed the earth was flat. And they believed when these sailors went to the west, like Columbus, to, to see what was out there, that they really thought that his ship would probably fall off the edge of the world and they would be lost forever. They, they believed that was truth. But then later, as evidence came in, they discovered, and also testimony, they discovered that the world was round. So you have to ask the question, well, which was true? Was the earth flat or was it round? Well, back then, they believed it was flat because of their testimonies and because of their evidence. And so they put their faith in the flatness of the world. But then when the evidence came in and the testimony started coming, they, they changed the truth to say, well, this is truth now. That was not truth. So the question is, how do we know the Bible's truth? How do we know that our faith is truth? Well, we hopefully base it on testimony and also on evidence. When it comes to the scriptures, there are a lot of people that believe the Bible is flat. A lot of people, they put their faith in the fact that the Bible is flat, that it has certain parameters, certain jurisdictions, certain realities, but also some nuances of inadequacy, imperfection. And so their faith is based on their testimony and their evidence. But what's crazy is, is that their evidence hasn't been scientifically proven. It's just a hunch. It's a desire. It's a personal attitude uh, that they don't want the scriptures to be right. Because if, they, if the Bible is true, then they have to reshape the way they live their lives in order to accommodate all of this truth. And they don't want that. So they start at a position where I don't believe. It's kind of a crazy thing, really. So really what it boils down to is, is you. Now, another thing that he, he said uh, that I recall was um, he talked about a, a lot of people. Well, for example, if I were to say how many of you believe or that you have faith that this book here is the word of God, right? And then you would say, well, yes, I, I believe that. I have faith in that. But that would be truth, right, because you believed in it? But then if you have a Muslim who has a Quran and you say, do you believe in your Quran? Do you believe in your holy scriptures? He said, yes, this is truth. 
So how can his be truth and ours be truth at the same time? So you get a problem there. And so the problem is, is that we don't base truth on our faith. Our faith doesn't produce truth. Truth produces faith. Truth produces faith. And so a lot of people start from faith and say, well, I believe this about this page. I believe this page is wrong. This page is right. This page is wrong. We don't get to pick and choose. Our faith doesn't determine what truth is. Truth will persist through time. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that kind of stuff. Dawson McAllister is way over my head, but the stuff he was saying was like, wow, that's crazy stuff. You know, the way he puts it in perspective and explains it, you're thinking, that's just crazy. But for most of us, the Bible is what you want it to be. But it really shouldn't be that way. It should be truth because it should be the way God wanted it to be. And this is a message that he's given to us to shape our lives and to guide us in, in all truth and to bring us to a place of right position with God. And, and so when you read this little passage in 2 Timothy 10, a couple of the things it says, and we're gonna, I'm going to expand on this more because I think this is very relevant to what we're going through today. He says that in verse 14, um, continue what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful. So this is our foundation. At least this is the foundation that we should come with today as believers in the body of Christ. Now, a couple, a couple things that are very pertinent. Um, there's a war going on in this world and within each of us as individuals. The war that's going on is between the world and our Heavenly Father. As Ephesians says quite eloquently, it's, it's a spiritual battle. We don't battle against flesh and blood. We battle against spirits, principalities, demonic world, darkness, all of these things. This is what we battle against. If we go back to creation, what we find is, is that Adam and Eve were perfect in the garden. But when they decided to eat of the fruit, brokenness entered into creation. And now the relationship that God intended on having with humans was forever altered and distorted. And so when we get into the world and we become familiar with our sinful brokenness, thanks to the fall of Adam, um, we come into a world in which we are already separated from God and his, his, his position of purpose for us. And that, that brokenness separates us from him. It, it doesn't give us access to him because the scriptures make it very clear. He is a holy and just God. And it have accurate, to have adequacy, to have access to him is not possible because of our filthiness due to our sinfulness. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. We're sin, we're dirty, we're broken. We can't have access to holiness because we'll be struck down. We can't do it. We just can't. And, but that's what God wants. That's why he created humans. 
He wanted us to have, he wanted to have relationship with us so he could put himself into us and live life through us for the sake of others. He just, that was his, his core plan. He wanted to have this intimate fellowship with us, but sin has destroyed it. And, and so when Jesus came into the world, this was his, his solution to the problem that by Jesus's blood, we would have a restoration in God that he could return to being in us, having relationship with us the way he originally intended. So my conviction lately has been this. Jesus did not come into the world just to get you into eternal life. He didn't just come to die on a cross for you to have forgiveness of sins so that you can have fire insurance. Because what happens is, if that is your mindset, then it doesn't matter what you do with your life, just as long as you believe in God, and then you're, you have your, your, insur- your, your travel ticket bought for eternity. And so those people that think like that have nothing to do with God even after their salvation. That's not what he wants. He doesn't just want you to get into heaven. He wants you to enjoy life. He came to give it to you life abundantly. But most of us don't live abundantly. We're at odds with him because we're like, we're still in the flesh. We still want to live for our sake, for our benefit. That's not what he wants from us. He wants to be intimate with us. He, and so, so through Jesus, he was expecting that we would want him to take up residency within us and that we could return to this fellowship. When we pray, it's like talking to your mama or your papa on the phone at night. When, when we, when we uh, are reading the Bible, it's like having God right here saying, okay, now this is what this means, and this is how this applies to your life. When it comes to the birth of your children, God says, see, this is a gift that I intended for you. I wanted to just radically change your life with this little blessing here, and, and this little blessing is going to be very fruitful in the kingdom. and All this stuff that he wanted to do in us, but mainly he just wanted to love us. He wants to love us. And the best way to love us is to be inside of us where he can just have fellowship with us all the time. And when you love somebody, that's really what you want. You just want to be with them and share everything with them. But, but see, that's the battle, and it's a spiritual battle because we're still at odds with ourselves. We haven't adequately died to our old self. We haven't died to our old sin, our habits, our brokenness. And so what happens is after we get baptized in water and we join the church, we still continue to live for ourselves. That's why we have so many people that are baptized members of the church that don't come because they're living their own life right now. And we can't judge them because we've all done it. And we just keep loving on them and give them grace because we've all been there before. And we pray for them and hope that one day they'll come back because God wants to have fellowship with them. And so when he's talking in this passage of Scripture about the Scripture and the significance that Scripture plays in our lives, There's a battle going on here, and if we unfold this whole chapter, we'll see it. We'll see the battle. Now, I want to, I just want to insert one little reflection that I've discovered over the years. And this may or may not help you. This may irritate you to death. And I'm sorry if it irritates you. Um, Take it up with the boss. 
<laughs> but but here's, here's the thing that I discovered. Uh, we did a survey in our church in Peoria. I may have told you this before, but just as a reminder. We did the survey, and in the survey it said, do you believe in the authority of Scripture? The, the, the perfect authority of Scripture. Do you believe that it's godly inspired? Do you believe that it's adequate, that it, it has all everything you need for eternal life? Does it have everything you need to develop into the person God called you to be? And most people will say, absolutely. In our church, 77% of the people said, I believe in the Scriptures. And that's a great thing, isn't it? However... As the survey continued to dig, it asked a follow-up question. How many of you read your Bible daily for the purpose of edification? And it discovered that only about 23% of those who believed in the Scripture actually used the Scripture, actually spent time in the Scripture. In other words, they didn't really believe it. It was aspirational. They knew that they were supposed to believe in it. They knew they were supposed to respect it. And they know that if there's ever a time in their life where they need some wisdom from God, that's where you go to find it. But most Christians, most believers, don't believe in the Scriptures to the extent that they're going to allow it to be the filter by which they live their lives and develop their own philosophy and theology and, and religious practices. Most people don't do it. So in actuality, most people don't believe in the Scriptures. That's kind of sad, isn't it? So, so here's the battle that takes place. Let's go back to the beginning of chapter 3. Because first it's going to draw, anytime there's a battle, there's opposing forces. There's different sides to the issue. And so he's going to develop the sides to the issue. And this is contextual and it's also cultural. And I believe it's still relevant today, which I think you'll find. But in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, now mark this. In other words, write this down in your prayer journals and, and, and ponder these things. So there will be... Terrible times in the last days. Terrible times in the last days, meaning a lot of discomfort, a lot of dissatisfaction, a lot of fighting and bickering, and a lot of death and dying, and it's just going to be ugly. And it says, here's the definitive words that will illustrate it. People will be lovers of themselves. We would call that selfishness, right? People who love themselves are selfish. And if they're extremely selfish, we would call them narcissistic, right? Self-absorbed. Now, here's the thing. I've said this before, but you may not remember this. In the Greek, well, in the English, we have one word for love. It's love, right? In the Greek, there's three words for love. The first one is agape love, which is the, the premium love. That is godly love. That is sacrificial love. That is uh, self-denying love. That is, I'm going to do everything I can for the other person because of my love for them, and I want nothing in return. This is unselfish, absolute, perfect, godly love. Agape love. In the church, we talk about agape love, but we don't always really see it because of the perfection that it implies. But that's the good love that God has for us. 
And then the second tier down from that is philos, which is friendly love. If you think of Philadelphia, which is the city of brotherly love, Adelphos is the Greek word for brother, and philos is the Greek word for friendly love. And so it is the city of friendly, loving people, unless you play them in a football game and you don't want to go there, right? Because they can get ugly. Um, But aspirational again. But this is interesting. This word lover is based on the, the root word philos. So when we see people will be lovers of themselves, this is also implying an ongoing intimacy with self. This is an opposition to loving God. This is loving myself with all that I am, all that I have, all that I ever will be. With all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I will love myself. That is what it's talking about. In those last days, this is how people will act. I don't care about my parents. I don't care about my grandparents. I don't care about church members. I care about me. And that's going to be ugly. We're getting there, but we're not there completely yet. In other words, it's going to get a whole lot worse. But right now, we are surrounded by selfishness. Nobody cares about anything except themselves in this world. Hopefully, that is the contrast with Christians that we actually are in conflict with that because we're living the life the way God intended us to with his power and presence in us, transforming the world by this love that he has given us and fed us with. It goes on to say, not only will be the lovers of themselves, but they're going to be lovers of money. In other words, if they, well, here's here's what it means. They're going to manipulate you and deceive you and lie to you in order to get from you what they want, money or things. So they're going to be extremely manipulative because they want to drain you because they want what you have and they feel like they deserve it, that you owe it to them because that's what they want because it's all about me and so I want things that I want. And then it goes from there to say they will be lovers or they will be boastful. Oh, this is a good one, boastful. In the Greek word for boastful, what it implies is this, a person who is a bragger, a person who likes to pump themselves up and loves for people to praise them. But it goes further than that. A bragger or a boastful person is someone who will take it to the extreme of bragging on self to the point where it crosses the line of truth. So in other words, these boasters, these these braggers are going to um, glorify themselves and embellish their record to make them look like something they're not, to make them look better than they are, stronger than they are, more faithful than they are, more wealthy than they are. They're just basically living a life of lie to you, but also to themselves, which they don't realize necessarily. You may know boastful people like that. I don't know. Might be married one. Might have a child who's one. We don't have to elaborate. But there's, there's people around. The other one, it goes on to say they're very, they're very proud people. Pride is one of the worst of the seven deadly sins. because, it, And actually, I believe it infiltrates every one of the seven deadly sins. Pride is extremely difficult to work with. Because pride, um, in order for God to work in a person or through a person, there has to be humility. 
Proud is the opposite to that. It's the counterpart to that. So a person who's proud is a person who has no humility. And, and it takes humility to receive God's work, his Holy Spirit in you to do things through you. But if you're proud, you're never going to depend upon the Holy Spirit. You're never going to trust in God. You're always going to trust in yourself. So you don't care about the things of God. You don't care about his help. You're going to do it by your strength. I will determine what I read. I will determine who I visit. I will determine what, how much money I give to the church. I will determine this, 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 and this because of pride. The other thing is, it says that they will be abusive. Abusive. Abusive uh, could be personal abuse. And I think it's interesting that a lot of times people who are extremely bragful, bragful, boastful, people who are extremely proud, people who are very money-focused, money-centered, and people who are highly selfish are also people who practice self-abuse. They hate themselves. Why do they hate themselves? Because they're never going to be satisfied with what they have. So they call themselves names. They treat themselves like crap. Pardon my French. Actually, that might be Portuguese. I don't know. But, but the fact is, they're people who really don't like themselves, but they'll never admit to that. But they're also people, because they don't like themselves, are going to abuse you. They will abuse you physically. They will abuse you sexually, spiritually, and mentally. Because they hate themselves, they hate what they become, and because they feel so bad, they're going to try to beat you down to where you're lower than them so that they can feel better about themselves. It also goes on to say they will be disobedient to their parents. Disobedient to their parents. Remember, one of the Ten Commandments is, honor thy father and mother. And in the Ten Commandments, there's a little built-in discipline factor. If you don't, you will not live a very long life. God don't play that game. If you're going to disrespect your parents, and that doesn't mean you have to love them, like them, or approve of them, but you have to respect them and honor them. If you do those things, you're probably going to love them anyway. But this is the world, this is the culture that this, is going, this whole passage is relevant to. Because on this side, we have these people who are living these awful, ungodly lives, like it says here. Now, it goes on further, and I won't spend my time unfolding all of these, but listen to the list. They will be ungrateful. Whatever you do for them, not good enough. Ungrateful. They won't say thank you because you owe it to them. They will be unholy. They don't care anything about God or his righteousness. They only care about pleasing themselves. Unholy people. They will be without love. No love. You want your child to say, I love you? Well, if they're unable unable to do that, incapable of it, they will not have any love in them to give to you. So it's all talk. Talk is cheap. They will be unforgiving because they don't love you. They don't love anybody. So why would they forgive you? There's no point to that. They will be slanderous. In in other words, they're going to accuse you of things you never did. They're going to be calling you names that don't match you. They're going to be very destructive in the way they treat you because they just don't like you. They don't like themselves. They don't like anybody. They will not practice self-control. They will be brutal, brutal people in in how they speak to you and how they make you feel, and how they intend to make you feel. They will be brutal in, in how um, they treat others and how they treat people at school. A lot of times they'll be bullies. 
um, but they will treat you incredibly painfully. They will be treacherous. They will be rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. The word lover or lovers is mentioned five times in this little passage in five verses. That's a whole lot of time to be talking about people who are practicing self-love. That is the backdrop in which Paul is writing to Timothy and saying, now look, this is how bad things are, but this is the culture in which you live. This is the people that we are living among. And that's why the scriptures make it very clear. You can be in the world, but don't be of the world. And I was reading the other day in John 16, Jesus said, if you're living in the world, they will hate you because of my name, because you're not of the world. If you're of the world, they will accept you and they will treat you like roses. You know, uh, I I can tell you as a side note that uh, there was a time in my life as a Christian that I went to bars a lot. And uh, and I would always tell people this, that when I go to a bar, I'm accepted. Everybody in the bar loves me. Everybody in the bar loves everybody. They're unconditional. They're accepting. Well, they're worldly. And when you live in the world, they're going to accept you. I would say this. If you go to a bar and everybody says, Norm, that's from the movie Cheers, if you forgot about that. But that's why we love Cheers when we watch the show, because when Norm came in, he was accepted there. If you go into a bar and they accept you like that, that's a problem. It's a red flag, because it probably means that you're more of the world than you think you are. So you got to be careful of that. But the world will hate you if you truly are following the ways of Christ. Because when God comes inside of you, it changes you, and he, he starts doing amazing things through you. And I've said this before because I've just learned this recently, but it's so true. When, when we come into contact with something spiritual, the flesh has a response to it. If, a, if the demon walked through that door right now, it would make your hair stand up on the back. It would give you goosebumps. It would make you a little fearful because of that spirit that has come into contact with your flesh. Now, if God were to walk through that door, it's going to have a a similar response or a similar effect, but a different response. In other words, it's going to provoke something in us, but his living purity, his presence is going to put all of us on our faces in reverence for one. And it's going to create this sense of fear that I hope I'm, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy, you know, and I hope, I hope he doesn't strike me down, that kind of thing. Because in the presence of holiness is when we're going to know that we're unrighteous. So, so when, when God is in you and you find yourself in a place that maybe you shouldn't be or maybe you really don't belong, then people around you are going to have a negative effect because of this righteousness in you. It's not going to be received well, and they're going to hate you for it. Do you see what I'm saying? So this godlessness in the last days is going to be ugly, ugly, ugly. It goes on in verse 6 to say, They are the kind who worm their way into into, uh, homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. In 7, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men opposed the truth. 
because they're worldly, they're ungodly, and they oppose the things that are righteous. They oppose the truth. They oppose the things of God. They don't want anything to do with it. And so this is a major opponent that we're up against in this spiritual battle. And they don't like us. They hate us, even to the point of death. John 16 says, and they actually believe that if they could kill us, they're doing God a service by abolishing our lives. So Janus and Jambres, they stood up to Moses. They opposed him. They were men of depraved minds. And as far as their faith is concerned, are rejected. But he says, but they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. All right, so that's the opponent. Now he gets into the passage we just started talking about. Now remember, the common theme in the first part was lovers of self. Lovers, right? Friendly lovers of the things that they love. But as we get into chat, into verse 10 and we start going through this passage of Paul, this is what Paul is saying to Timothy. Remember these things. Ponder these things. Here's the opponent. He says, you, however, know about my teaching, which is truth, my way of life, which is based on Christ-like. It is filled with the Holy Spirit, God in me, living through me. That is the life I live. You've seen it at work, healing people, casting out demons, uh, working miracles, loving people, building churches, changing lives, bringing people into the kingdom of God. That's what you've seen through God living in me for the sake of a dying world. He also says this, you know my purpose, my faith, my patience, my godly love. This is agape here, agape love, sacrificial love. You know this. You know my endurance and my persecutions. Because remember, we just went back to say, these are people that will oppose godliness with with a bit of some some bitterness and anger and resentfulness. He faced a lot of persecution and suffering. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? Those persecutions that I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So do you see the opposing sides here? Lovers of self, of self-absorbed, narcissistic, evil, manipulative, angry, hate their parents, these types of things. And on this side of the issue, you have agape love, sacrificial uh, teaching, way of life, love, endurance, forgiveness, peace of mind, joy, happiness, all these things. But you will also have persecution. Almost as many times as you have lovers on the first side, you have persecution on the other side. Because not only will the world not just accept you or tolerate you, they're going to hate you. They're going to want to abolish you because, and this is the only way to explain it, because of the light of Christ inside of you, when you walk into their dark closet the light is going to shine upon all of their sinfulness and all of their brokenness and all of their uneasiness, and you're going to make them so uncomfortable, they're going to want to kill you dead. That's just the reality. 
You know, in my family, a lot of people say in their family that they're the black sheep of the family because they're the naughty one, right? They're the ones who always get in trouble. I, I say this jokingly, but it's also true. I'm the white sheep of my family. Uh, at least I've always felt that I was the white sheep. Another one is getting whiter, you know. He's going through the purification process. But, uh, again, the white sheep of the family means that this is, I'm, I'm the only one who really was going to church, the only one who took it seriously, the only one who reads my Bible, the only one who really is trying to, 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 to find out who God is and what he wants for my life. Um, I hope you don't think that I'm trying to brag on myself or anything like that. I'm just saying I'm different from my brothers. I'm just different. My priorities are different. But as a result of that, I'm heavily persecuted. My family actually told me one time, um, this is when I lived close to them, I'm like, why didn't I ever get an invite to the wedding? Or why didn't I get an invite to the baby shower, whatever else everybody else went to? And they said, because we don't want you there, basically. They said, because when you come here, we can't have fun. I'm like, all right, great. You know, that's great, thanks. But that, that's what it was. And, and now I don't even ask, and they don't invite. It's sad. But this is what we can expect. And so because of this dichotomy, because of this battle, the spiritual battle that takes place, this is one significant reason why God gave us the Holy Scriptures. Because in this battle, remember, it's spiritual warfare, spiritual armor. In Ephesians chapter 6, we have one offensive weapon. That is the word of God. This is the sword of the spirit. This is all we have to fight with. You go to the desert, 40 days, Jesus was fighting with the devil. The only thing he could do was argue scriptures with him. And he didn't argue it, he taught it to him. So, in the spiritual battle, this is what we need to know about the book. Continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you've learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation. Now, focus on one little word, ability. This book is able to give you everything you need to be wise for salvation. The parameters are set in the word ability. It's only able... If you utilize it, it's only able if you bring it into your life and let it become your life. If you keep it on the shelf where it attracts dust and bugs, it will never be effective for you. I say that because in eastern Kentucky, I had an elderly lady and her mom who I went to visit frequently. Uh, They were both shut-ins. They both were on oxygen tanks. And even in the summer, they had a a little pot-belly stove in the middle of the living room that was red-hot. But they would walk around the room and their oxygen cords would be wrapped around the legs of that. And I, anyway, I just, just like, that thing's going to blow one day. Um, <laughs> but also because of their limitations, their house was not very sanitary. And every time I went, I would see roaches all over the house. And, and one time she said, oh, I want you to see my Bible. I've had this in the family for 100 years. And I pick it up and I open it and roaches fall out of it. <laughs> Dead ones and live ones. And I'm like, all right. All right? Great Bible, by the way. Um, I didn't read any of it. I'll just have you say that. I feel guilty of saying it. But that's not the purpose, is to collect dust and roaches. So the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation if you utilize them. 
through faith in Christ Jesus. Your faith is in Christ Jesus. And if your faith is in Christ Jesus, your faith is also going to be in his testimony, the word of God. If you put your, your, your faith in the testimony, the, the Bible, instead of Christ, it's not going to work right. Now, through that process, he, God could open your eyes to little nuggets and lead you to Christ. But when you really adequately put your faith in Christ, then the scriptures come to life. And then he says this, all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture. And I have to just put in as a side note, even the ones you don't like. Every verse in this Bible, by my faith, is God-breathed and beneficial. I don't have the luxury as an intellect, as a, as a human, as a person who lives in the flesh from time to time. I don't have the luxury of going through and changing the words on these pages. Nor do I have permission to take one of those little exacto knives and cut out all of the Bible verses that I don't like. The whole book is the testimony of God. Every passage is relevant to us as individuals and as a church. We cannot handpick what we're going to believe and live by and what we're not. The whole book is our testimony. Now, it's useful when it comes time to teaching people. Now, understand the difference here. When you teach someone is when they have submitted to your teaching and they're asking for input. Like a Sunday school teacher, when a kid or even an adult class, when you sit in a class with a teacher, you're submitting to the teaching of that leader. And you're saying, I want you to teach me from the scriptures what this means. Kind of like uh, Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch. When the eunuch read and he says, Philip said, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how can I unless somebody guides me through these scriptures and teaches me? So teaching is very important, but don't ever go to a class and and sit there through a teacher that doesn't use scripture to teach. I said this to somebody uh, yesterday, I think it was, when I was in Peoria, I followed a pastor who many times I was told by testimony that on a Sunday morning, instead of using scriptures, would use the newspaper and pick out an article that he thought was relevant to Christians, and then they would discuss, he would discuss the article to the church. That's messed up. The second one, it says, these scriptures are useful for rebuking. Teaching is when the person has submitted and says, I want to be taught. Rebuking is when they are in opposition to you, when they are resistant to what the scriptures say, when they don't want to hear what you have to say about the Bible. And in those cases, you have to rebuke them. When Jesus said to the disciples, I'm going to go and and to Jerusalem and I'm going to die there, Peter said, heaven forbid, nothing's going to happen to you. I'm going to make sure of it. And Jesus rebuked him because it was a spirit in him that was resisting what Jesus was teaching. Sometimes we have to use scripture to rebuke people and say, no, what you're saying is inadequate, it's inaccurate, and it's not going to stand. Get behind me. It's also useful for correcting. Now, correcting is also different from rebuking because this doesn't mean there's defiance. Correcting means there's a person who doesn't know, and they genuinely want to know the difference. They want to know the truth. 
So many times, this is one that comes to me a lot. What do you think about the Bible and homosexuality? And they said, because I don't see a problem with it, and I just don't understand what the dichotomy is here. And, and, I'll, and I'll just have to take them to the scriptures and say, well, because God doesn't approve of that. He didn't create it for that purpose. And there's many scriptures that pertain to it specifically, but the whole book pertains to that topic. And it's not that they're defiant and they're resistant. They just need to be corrected. You know, or, or somebody says, you know, I believe God told me that I should just go ahead and divorce my wife because I have an offer over here for somebody who's better. And God's telling me that I should just go and, and marry this person and get rid of the wife I have. No, God don't play that game either. And so you just have to gently rebuke them, or not rebuke them, but correct them. The scriptures are useful for those things. And also for training in righteousness. Training in righteousness. This basically is a process of spiritual maturity that gets you closer and closer to the Lord. And as you get closer, you become more and more like the Lord. Because remember, being a Christian means being Christ-like. It's a process. It's, a, it's a, like a fine-tuning. It's like a purification process. And as you go through the steps, you become more mature and more pure. And then at the day of your death, Jesus will take you by the hand and lead you the rest of the way to where you will have spiritual perfection and be completely pure so that you can enter into God's presence. And he says in 17, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, do you believe in the scriptures? I don't want to ask you that question. I want you to ask yourself that question. Do you believe that they are 100% authentic, reliable, and pertinent to your life as a Christian being? If they are, then prove it. Put it to work. Become intimate with the book and let it begin guiding your steps. Make sense? I'm exhausted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this incredible book that is a book of life. And when we read it, it gives us life. It transforms us. It, it prunes us. It energizes us. And it gives us peace. We pray that you'll help all of us to be students of the book And I pray, Lord, that you'll transform us as a result because we have a world around us, a culture around us, Lord, that needs to be transformed. It needs people to transform it. Please come, breathe life into us so that we may breathe life into this world. Forgive our sins, forgive us of our complacency, but Lord, breathe life into us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're gonna stand, um, actually, just remain seated because she's got a special music.